You have your Bible turn to Matthew eleven twenty nine. That'll be our text verse for tonight. Um, talking about the yoke of Christ. Anybody want to read Matthew eleven twenty nine? Thank you, Brother Dan. We spent several weeks looking at the previous verse where Jesus said in verse 28, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I think you'll agree that is certainly a very gracious call. It's to those who are seriously looking for peace in their heart, and they realize they're carrying a load of guilt they cannot handle for themselves. And again, that call is for everyone who is longing for the rest of soul. Now, again, the call is for everyone, but it's only those who understand their need of that rest, uh, that long that they have, uh, because uh, there's nowhere else to find it except through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ says, come unto me and I will give you rest. And he doesn't just stop there. He sort of gives a little more detail about it. Uh, certainly he reminds us that he's the one who gives rest. And that being said, where else can we find it? Nowhere else. He's the only one that can provide it. And then, of course, he talks about the conditions that we must meet if we are going to uh, enjoy that rest. We have to come to him. So our text tonight, in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. So in verse 29, Christ gives us a requirement. He said, if we're going to take part of that rest, we have to take his yoke on ourselves. Now, the question I would ask, I suppose, is uh, when, we, when you hear the word yoke, I think you know what we're talking about. What comes to mind? Okay, oxen? Okay, why would you say that? Okay, that's certainly true. Uh, you know, but I, I, if I, unless I miss my guess, none of us here have ever yoked an oxen. Right? But we certainly know uh, the parameters of it. We've read about it. We've seen certainly maybe even movies made of that. But yeah, there, you're exactly right, Dan, so that uh, they could... Uh, work together, pulling a plow, or whatever it might be. Now, first of all, uh, to help better understand the application here, uh, is there a difference between oxen running wild in a field or oxen that are uh, yoked together to a plow? Is there a difference in what they're doing? They're working together. Who said a big difference? Okay, why is that, Paul? Now, I've never, my granddad used to, my, my, my dad, when he was younger, of course, as a kid, uh, they used to have mules they yoked together to do stuff with. But, of course, we're talking about oxen, the, the principle is the same. But I like what you said, Paul, because the first time you try to put a yoke on an oxen, I mean, the first time the oxen wore one, think that could be an easy thing to do? No. 
They're not, they're not, they don't want to be yoked. I, I don't know exactly what they, how they understand that. Uh, but the thing is, when you see oxen out in the field, wild oxen out there, they pretty well do what they want. But an oxen that's been yoked, they go where they're directed by their owner. You know, they're, they're controlled by the one, uh, who owns them. And he's the one that sort of, to at least some degree, uh, directs their energies. Now, I've never, again, never seen a, a physical yoke necessarily. I've seen horses with bridles in their mouth and you can, you know, kind of cause pain if they don't obey your, you know, your instructions. Uh, but I don't know exactly how a yoke works. But nonetheless, we do know it's the one who owns those oxen who kind of controls or tr- at least tries to direct their energies, whether it's to pull a plow, pull a wagon, whatever it might be. Look what Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3.27. Anybody got that? Okay, good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And the idea here is that uh, unless young people are disciplined, unless they are uh, brought under subjection and taught to obey their superiors, chances are they'll become rebels against God and rebels against man. Is that true? Yes. I, I forget what I was reading quite a few years ago and who the author was, but in his book... He talked about uh, raising our children, and he said each generation is about 20 years away from savagery, being a savage again. If we don't train our children, we're going to be in trouble. And that's what Lamentations is talking about uh, when Jeremiah wrote that. Look again at Jeremiah 31, verse 18. Jeremiah 31, verse 18. It's interesting, and thank you, Phyllis, for reading that. Of course, Jeremiah is writing about the largest tribe of Israel, Ephraim, uh, and uh, God has chastised them. And was it, comf- was it comfortable for them to be chastised by God? No. In fact, they compared it to, to what? A, a, a yoke. Like you're putting a yoke on me. So again, <laughs> God put Ephraim in the, in, in, a, in the yoke, so to speak. He, he chastised them. Uh, he was chastising them, and they, and they complained. It's like putting me in a yoke. And certainly it wasn't an easy thing to do. Job 11, verse 12. Thank you, Dan. Now, don't miss that, okay? The natural man is born like a wild donkey's colt. What does that mean? Yeah, loud and free and uncontrollable. Absolutely. Self-willed, determined to have his own way no matter what, and certainly not easy to tame. Now, certainly we know when God created man, we were created perfect. Everything God did was perfect. It was good. He said so. But when the fall came, man lost his anchor. And uh, like a ship that's now was at mercy of the winds and the waves. And, of course, in the unregenerated condition, 
Our heart is unstable, and man runs to his own destruction because they have lost their way. So it's interesting. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. And so because of our unregenerated state, because we're born like a wild donkey's colt, we have a need to be controlled, to be yoked, if you will. And that's what Jesus says here. We have to come take his yoke upon us if we're going to find rest for our soul. Now, again, you know well enough that Jesus is not talking about a literal yoke. Isn't that true? But there's certainly a significance here, some symbolic significance, because the yoke of Christ, it signifies dependence. It signifies unqualified obedience. But it also signifies unreserved submission to him. So if we are going to find the rest that God wants to give us, we must be totally submissive to Christ, depending upon him, and obedient in every way. Now, my question would be, why would we owe this to Christ? Would you, are you telling me he paid a high price? He prayed the ultimate price. You see, because here's the thing. And thank you for that. So that's right on the target here because Christ is both our rightful Lord and he's our gracious Redeemer. Now think about that. And that being said, he has a, a, a double claim upon us because we are the creature of his hand. He created us. And he gave us being... And all of our capacities and faculties we have, everything we have comes from who? It comes from Him. So He's redeemed us. He's also acquired an, an additional claim upon us. We are now the purchased property of another. And that's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, look at verse 19 and 20. Thank you, Phyllis. Now, let's, let's just camp here for a few minutes, a couple of minutes anyway. You know, Paul is asking the, the first sentence is one word, what? Now, what? <laughs> I don't know how to I'll say it, but what does that word what mean there, what way it's written? Yeah, in, in what kind of way? I'm surprised you don't know. Don't you realize? What? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? What does that mean? You should know it. And guess who lives in us? He's alive. And the God of the universe lives in us. And Paul said, don't you realize that's what God's given you? Don't you know? You should know it. You're right, Dan. You should know that. But here's the, the clincher at the end of verse, 29, uh, verse 19. You are not your own. Why? Because Christ has purchased us. We're bought with a price. 
So Paul says, that being a fact, we're to glorify God in our body and in our spirit. Why? Because they belong to God. They belong to God. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he means surrender ourselves to his lordship, submit to his rule, and let his will become our will. Matthew Henry uh, wrote a commentary. Most, A lot of Christians have a very general commentary in the Bible. And uh, he speaks on this particular verse. And here's what he says. We are here invited to Christ as prophet, priest, and king to be saved. And in order to this, we're also invited to be ruled and taught by him. Take my yoke. Upon you. Now again, once that it takes a team of oxen to be yoked, got to have at least two. Once they're yoked, the owner yokes them so that he can get them to at least submit to his own will, to work under his control. And it's kind of interesting. That's what Jesus calls us to do. We're to work under his control. Now remember, in a way of a question, who did Jesus die for? He died for everyone. He died for everyone. And he did that so that anyone who would come and receive him would receive his new new life. Uh, they would no longer live for themselves, uh, but they would now live for Christ who died and was raised for us. I was thinking of a hymn sometime Ruby will have on Sunday morning. And I, know, I think it's uh, because he died for me, I'll live for him. Is that kind of some of the words of that? But that's exactly what it is. Because of what he's done for me, I will live for him. Second Corinthians chapter 10, look verses 3 through 6. Second Corinthians ten, three through six. I think we we can't miss this, the tone of what Paul is writing. He talks about our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty through the pulling down of strongholds. He goes on to say we're to cast in all things, everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. But we're also to bring captive every thought to obedience to Christ. And I realize salvation is free. But my friend, I want to tell you, walking with Jesus is not easy. 
There's a high demand placed upon our lives. And I know in the culture we live, especially here in America, in my opinion, very few Christians reach that level in their walk with God. And I, I'm concerned about their soul because I think they've been deceived either by others or self-deceived. But the bottom line is this, and people don't want to hear this, Jesus requires absolute submission and obedience in all things. And that includes our inward life and what else? Our outward life as well. In fact, he says, bring into captivity even every thought to the obedience of Christ. Walking with Christ is a lifelong pursuit. It's interesting that I don't have the verses in our text tonight, and I just thought of them, but you remember the time, and I think it's in Luke's Gospel, Jesus uh, talked about uh, someone who's going to build a house or whatever it is. He doesn't do so, but he counts the cost. Or someone going to war, they, they look at the military things on both sides. They consider the cost. And the problem is, if we are going to live for Christ, if we're going to find that rest, we need to consider the cost. And by the way, the sad thing is, we don't hear this priest so much today. Someone told me Monday evening, I was speaking with them, and they said to me, Pastor, people in our community need to hear what you've got to say. I said, but the problem is they don't want to hear what I've got to say. They don't want to hear that kind of preaching. They don't want to hear uh, conviction and repentance. Uh, they don't want to hear you preach about sin. Uh, somebody told Pam um, some time ago that uh, they loved going over to some big church over uh, by Jungle Gyms. I won't name the name. Because every time they go, they come home feeling good about themselves. Now, by the way, the only way I feel good about myself is because Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all my sins. There's nothing I've done. It's everything Christ has done for me. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is sort of in a hurry. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. And uh, he wants to say goodbye to the elders at the church at Ephesus. So he, his ship is on the coast, and he, instead of going in, inward to the church, and of course the church wasn't a building, it was a group of people, the elders come out to meet him. And it's sort of a, a solemn meeting because Paul realizes, and he tells them, it'll probably be the last time they're going to see his face. But look at what he says to them in verse 20 of Acts 20. Dan, would you mind skipping down to verse 27 too, please? What's Paul telling us? Telling them. Yeah. What did he hold back? What did he hold back? Nothing. I've shared and proclaimed the whole counsel of God. How many know that's not going on in a lot of churches today in America? Not at all. 
And you know what Paul is basically saying here? If anyone that I preach to suffers damnation, you can't blame who? You can't blame me. I told you everything. I gave you the whole counsel of God. Paul had boldly and thoroughly proclaimed what they needed to know to be saved and what they needed to know to grow in Christ. And as Paul preached the gospel and and taught there for those many days, he gave them all of God's purpose that God had revealed to him. And Paul took those sayings and he taught them to those he preached to. And I love this because... Paul could look them in the eye and he can say, I gave you everything God gave me to give to you. I didn't hold not one thing back. And according to the book of Acts, for two years every day, Paul faithfully preached and he taught at the lecture hall of Tyrannius. And here's what's interesting. Paul understood a great principle that many churches are not following today. Paul understood there can be no growth in Christ without the transmission of truth. We've got to teach the Word of God. And we've got to receive the Word of God. Now, I don't know. I, you know, I've read a little bit of church history. I'm not a... I am not an expert on that for sure. But I believe there was a time when preacher preached the truth. Even in America. When they kept nothing back that was profitable for the hearers. And God honored that. I was listening to someone this past week, a clip. And he quoted Charles Spurgeon. Wow. And Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the day is coming. Rather than having shepherds feed the flock, you'll have clowns entertaining the goats. And my friend, Charles Spurgeon didn't realize how right he is. I mean, some of the things that I saw on a video clip this week going on recently in one of the largest churches in America. Unbelievable. And I thought about that quote. There is no doubt when I saw at that church was nothing more than clowns entertaining the goats. You see, the fact of the matter is this. Coming to Christ is easy, no doubt about that. But it's more than a mental agreement to Scripture. It's more than a mental assent. It's submitting our whole selves and being to Him. And nobody, no heart, can be open to Christ to receive Him unless they're willing to take up the cross of His sufferings and to take on the yoke of His obedience. My friend, that is required to walk with God. Matthew 16, verse 24. 
Wow. Thank you, Phyllis. A text in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. If either one of those are missing in our life, it's a barrier to Christ. We cannot really, truly know Him. Matthew ten thirty eight. Matthew ten thirty eight. Thank you, Phyllis. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, take up our cross and follow him. Matthew 11, we read earlier, take my yoke upon you, learn of me. But now he says this. If you don't, what's the result? We're not worthy to follow him. We are not worthy to follow him. Now, I realize the original words were spoken to the disciples. But it's also for anyone who wants to be worthy of Jesus. And the worthy here implies worthy, meaning willing to follow and serve him. And the illustration he used, take up the cross. Today, when we think of a cross, what do we usually think of? Okay. Yeah. Yes. But here's the thing, okay? In our culture, we have glamorized a cross. Now, I don't wear jewelry. I wear a wedding ring. That's about it. I don't have bells on my toes or rings on my nose, okay? <laughs> but how many people wear crosses on their jewelry? And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. That's we do. And we make it something glamorous, something pretty. But how glamorous and pretty was the cross Jesus hung on? Was it? Yeah. And Phyllis, I, I agree with most of what you said, but we need to also realize, and you said we think of the cross Christ was crucified on, but when you say cross to the world, they don't think about that. They don't. But in Jesus' day, when he said this, everyone in that crowd, even whether or not they were disciples or not, knew what he meant. They knew the cross was a place of execution. The cross was a place where you died. So, if we were going to think like they would have thought in that day and time, instead of wearing a cross around our neck in today's culture, we would wear an unlucky chair or a needle or whatever ways of death might be used, wherever it might be. So they understood what he meant. And again, Christ does not expect us to go on that cross physically, but he does expect us to die out to ourselves. But I think the key here is a, 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 a very clear illustration of the humility 
and submission that Jesus is asking of those who follow him. And Phyllis, you're right. It wasn't, now the, certainly the cross is essential, but look how Jesus humbled himself. Look what he went through to get there, Phyllis. Absolutely, we've got to take on that same thing that he did. So, again, they knew what it meant to take up the cross. And it was a form of execution the Romans used. And it was mainly used for the worst of criminals and political prisoners. And also understand, Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. And you know the story of Jesus. Uh, but he wasn't unique in that. Now, again, he was a sinless Savior, so we know that. He had no sin. But it was common for the prisoner to carry their own crossbar to the place of execution. And, of course, they, they tried to get Jesus to do that. So, again, doesn't matter who we are or what we're faced with, Jesus says, whether it's social or political oppression, whether you're ostracized by your family... Jesus said, whatever you do, don't turn back. In fact, Jesus said, if you put your hand to the plow and turn back, guess what? You're not worthy. You are not worthy. And throughout the ages since Christ made that statement, for some, taking with the cross did mean death. But for everyone, it means denying ourselves. So we have to obey his word, spread the gospel, follow his will, no matter what the consequences might be to us personally. To follow Christ, and hear me well, folks, must be a moment-by-moment decision that requires denial of ourself and taking up our cross. And following him. So let's take a look at that statement. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. The first thing I realize. Number one. In that statement. It's a yoke we have to place on ourselves. Now what it says. Take. Now if you take something what do you do? Reach out and get it. Take my yoke upon you. So listen to me, folks. The yoke that Christ is talking about here is not placed on us by somebody else. It's not placed on us by Christ. It's one that we place upon ourselves. Take my yoke upon you. But it's also a definite act on our part. If we're going to seek rest from Christ... And if we don't take that yoke upon us, we'll never find the rest that Jesus offers. It's a specific act of mind. It's an act of conscious surrender to his authority and saying, if if you will, in essence, that I am going to be ruled by Jesus. I will take that yoke and put it on me. In Acts chapter 9, there is a persecutor. He's on the way to Damascus and he's running from God. Acts chapter 9, verse 6.
Okay, we're talking about Saul before he became known as the Apostle Paul. And God got a hold of him. And all of his life, Saul had been doing what Saul wanted to do. Now what's he ask? Lord, yeah, what do you want me to do? So he took this yoke upon him. God had convicted him of his rebellion. And all of a sudden, Saul is conquered by a sense of the Savior compassion. And he says, Lord, what will you have me to do? In that statement alone from Saul, what does that imply that Saul's willing to do? Yeah, whatever you ask, I'll take that yoke upon me. So if we're going to take the yoke of Christ upon us, it signifies that we're setting aside our own wills, we're completely submitting to him, and we are now acknowledging his lordship in a very practical, personal way. I uh, think about that. And how many know tonight that Jesus wants something more than lip service? Isn't that true? In fact, he wants loving obedience to his commands. Matthew seven twenty one. What's that verse tell us? Yeah. Isn't it true you can, you can cry, Lord, Lord, all you want? And there are a lot of people who do that. But their lives are not obedient to God. They haven't taken that yoke up on them. Absolutely. He trembles. He trembles. Skip down to verse 24 of Matthew 7. Jesus says, uh, if uh, you do these things, you're a wise man. You'll build your house on a rock. What does that mean? Yeah. You'll have a firm foundation. How important is that? That's all important. So the first thing that take my yoke upon you implies putting on ourselves. But the second thing it implies is turning our back on everything that stands against Christ. Everything. Isaiah 55, look at verse 7. Amen. The command is to return to the Lord, but you've got to forsake your wicked ways 
And you've got to forsake your unrighteous thoughts. So the idea here is this, and, and keep in mind, and, and sometimes we forget this, we're either under the yoke of Christ or the yoke of sin. Isn't that true? Sure. One or the other is controlling us. Yes, and no middle ground at all. Thank you, Phyllis. And so this thought presupposes the, the, our throwing off the yoke we, had, we wore all, the time, all those other days, the yoke of sin, the yoke of Satan, uh, the yoke of our self-will and self-pleasing, all that kind of thing. We throw that off. We turn our back on it because it stands against Christ. And we take on this yoke. It doesn't matter who you are or how long you've been saved. There was a time in our lives, and all of us, that we lived under the domination, the, the domination of other things. But once we take that yoke of Christ on us, our heartbeat is to stay, stay true to Him. Stay true to Him. So it means we take it on ourselves. We turn our back on everything that opposes him. The third thing is we change masters. Now, by the way, we don't want to admit this. There was a time we were a slave to sin. If you're saved, you're still a slave, but not to sin, to Christ. A conscious, cheerful change on our part. Romans 6.13. Just get down to verse 16 too, please. Okay. Phyllis, you said a while ago there's no middle, middle ground. Paul doesn't even mention a middle ground, does he? He says you either, whether it's a time in your life, uh, you served uh, unrighteousness, you serve sin, and now you've yielded yourself to Christ, to God. He also said in Romans 6.16, the choice you make, whoever you yield to serve, whoever slave you are, that's the one you'll obey. You have two choices. You're a slave to sin or obedience to Christ. Which one are you? If you're born again, there's a change in masters. But the fourth thing I see this, take my yoke upon you. It sounds like a paradox. Now remember, the invitation is for those who are laboring, those who are heavy laden, and the invitation says, Jesus says, come to me, I'll give you rest, but you have to take my yoke upon you. And here's what's interesting. And I've said it often, but, you know, uh, in my own eyes, back in the day, I knew I was a sinner, but, man, I wasn't as bad as most people I knew. Some of the people I knew, Okay. But in the eyes of God, guess who was as bad as everybody else, okay, without Christ. But a lot of it, I thought, wow, if I come to Christ, i got to give this up and give that up. 
And, and I don't, I don't want to be yoked with that. Burdened with that. I probably didn't use the word yoked. But I didn't realize I was already under a burden that I couldn't get free from. And so instead of the yoke of Christ bringing me into bondage, it really brought me real liberty. And it was years before I knew the verse. But I know now what Jesus means, whom the Son sets free. Free indeed. Free indeed. I'm going to make a statement here, folks. I want you to know, I do everything I want to do. Let that sink in. Because since Christ came to my life, I want to please Him. Sadly, though, and I hate to keep mentioning Romans 7, I find myself doing things I don't want to do because of what Christ has done for me. Look what Jesus says in John 8, 31 and 32. Thank you, Dan. Understand, folks, there has to be a continuing in the Word. If we're going to experience that freedom that we have in Christ, there has to be a constant walking in His Word. And as we continue in His Word, that's when the promise comes true. When Jesus said, you continue in my word, then you'll know that truth. And then that truth is going to make you free. And he's talking about knowing that truth, not just with your mind, but by experience. Learning of his power and how blessed that truth really is. And again, the consequence is, Jesus said, the truth will make you free. Free from prejudice, free from foolishness, free from ignorance, free from our self-will, free from our bondage to Satan, and free from the power of sin. Thank you for your word, Lord. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. James 1, 25. Thank you, Phyllis. James uses an illustration here. What in the world would be the perfect law of liberty? Who's he talking about here? Jesus, the Word of God. Okay. So look into it. That's where it begins. If you're going to know the Word of God, guess what? you got to read it. And I want to tell you, one of the biggest 
problems in American churches today, people don't read the Word anymore. Get into the Word of God. And James says, look into it. Continue in it. And don't forget what you hear. Because it's not just enough to be a hearer of the Word. We've got to be what? A doer of the Word. And James said, if you'll do that, you will be blessed. Psalm 119.45. Amen. So taking his yoke upon it is not a paradox. It's not a burden. It's a blessing. It's a setting us free. And so those who are obedient, those who truly take that yoke, find out. That God's commandments include the, are, are the perfect law of liberty. And David says, whenever we seek those precepts, we will walk in liberty. We're set free. But the fifth thing that this yoke speaks of, now again, if you're going to have a yoke, you need how many? At least two. So we're yoking, taking on the yoke of Christ. It speaks of a union. So it's, it's a, figure of a practical union. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Thank you. Paul asked two questions there. The command, first of all, is not to be yoked together, unequally yoked together. There's our word yoked with unbelievers. Then he asks, what kind of fellowship does righteousness have with with unrighteousness? And what kind of communion does light and darkness have? And what's the answer? None. None. So the Bible is clear about that. If we are belonging to Christ, the Bible forbids us to enter into any intimate relation with unbelievers. And hear me well. It's not my idea, it's God's. And I'm, I've learned a long time ago, still learning, God's way is still the best way. And when somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, I know what the Bible says, but I know then they're in trouble. They're getting ready to make a big mistake. And you'd be, wouldn't be, you'd be surprised at how many people through the years have come to me with those exact words. That means if you're a Christian, you have no business marrying an unsaved person. We are not to have any religious union with them at all. We're not to be unequally yoked. Now again, the yoke that Christ speaks of is a union of close communion. And Jesus says, make that union with me, with Christ. Come to him for rest. Come to him and enter into that practical union. And Jesus promises when we walk with him, we can enjoy fellowship together. Genesis 5, 24. 
Can you imagine that? Now, what does walking with God mean? It means you obeyed God. They had fellowship. They had a union together. And so it was with Enoch, the man who walked with God. I was reading the story of Elijah, just, I don't know if it was this morning or yesterday, in my daily Bible reading. And uh, for the first time, I noticed this. There were those 50 prophets watching. And I realized that a chariot came from heaven. But for the first time I noticed, the Bible clearly says, the chariot passed between Elisha and Elijah. Right between them, meaning what? Huh? He divided. Because now, the fellowship Elisha and Elijah once had, in that setting, is going to be no more. My friend God came. And I don't know how it happened. But I can only imagine as Elisha saw that chariot. Uh, and again, I don't know. He, did he step back? I don't know. All I do know is this. When that chariot came, him and Elijah were side by side. And next time he looked, where's Elijah? He's on that chariot. He's going home to God. An example of, some, of two men who took on the yoke of God. We're not finished yet. We'll pick it up again next week on that topic. But my friend, aren't you glad Christ gave that invitation? Amen.